Thank you very much for letting me uh, participate in this as well as, as an advisor to the restatement, although of course I know uh, little about international law and nothing about foreign relations law, and in fact only know about one uh, provision in the restatement, which the reporters tried to keep out altogether. And that would have kept me out of a job, so Hannah and I pushed very much to uh, put that back in, and that maybe justifies that I'm here. Um, I am supposed to speak about uh, reasonableness, the old section 403, the new section 405, and I'll uh, come to that in a, uh, in a moment. It's one provision. It's uh, maybe too mundane to talk about just one provision. Also, we've talked about it a fair deal yesterday. So I want to start maybe with uh, some of the conversation that we had yesterday broader about the role of a restatement and then lead over to where I think reasonableness fits in. So we had one discussion about uh, descriptive versus prescriptive uh, attitudes in a restatement. Should the restatement just state the law as it is or should it state the law as it should be? And I think it's important to remember that that's a, to some extent, that is an artificial distinction. It's an artificial distinction because as participants in the law and in legal discourse, which the ALI is, the, interpret the uh, material that we have always needs to be interpreted, and the interpretation of the material that we have is always uh, normative. I think that's, in, in the 20th century, that has had become at some point uncontroversial doesn't mean, obviously, that all arguments are equally possible and that all positions are equally well defensible, but it certainly means, I would think, that we know, first, there is no one clear truth about what the law actually is. Um, and second, it means also that I think the position of reporters to say we are merely saying how the law is, and so we have no responsibility for what comes out of it, is an avoidance that I think is not justified because the restatement takes a position in existing discussions. It says this is how existing materials should be interpreted. Uh, this is what we claim the law is. This is in that sense what we claim will be binding or at least is a restatement of what is binding and that is a normative position. It's a political position. And second, the point that G-Day made yesterday about uh, restatement becoming a focal point. Even if it doesn't have the normative force, it just becomes the point around which everyone rallies. That also means that effectively, in that sense, the ALI makes law, even though, of course, it takes a descriptive position. I've, that's actually something I've written a fair amount about on the descriptive versus prescriptive positions in restatements. And I think that's true in everyone. I think it's also true uh, in this one. That's not to say you restated the law wrong, it's just to push back a little against your position to say we, our hands are bound, this is all that we could do because that's just what the law happens, uh, happens to be. I think, by the way, just as an aside, on reasonableness, uh, Hannah and I spent a lot of time pushing you to see that actually what you were restating in the beginning was not fully accurate because there was much more reasonableness case law, at least in the lower courts, than you said at, um, at first. So in that sense, I would claim also on the purely uh, descriptive part, we were right to say, to push reasonableness. So, but if this is a normative statement and if it's a political position to some extent, then of course the question is, what do we do in a restatement? Uh, we can only uh, restate the law as it is at the point in time when we look at it, of course, but 
we also don't want to be completely tied to the moment and to the respective 5-4 majorities that exist on the Supreme Court at the time. So of course what everyone would do and what I take it you also have done is to look uh, backwards in time to see how does this link to what existed in the past, but also forward in time to say how does this last, how does this survive potential changes on, uh, on the courts, changes in jurisdiction, uh, etc. Et so what then would a restatement need to do? Um, I think the restatement restates to some extent, of course, substantive positions on open questions. But a large task that a restatement also has is to provide uh, structural guidance. So not to say here are the outcomes that you should have, but here is how you should think about legal problems. Here's the infrastructure, if you want, the, 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 the grammar of the law or a possible grammar uh, in the law. So one criticism that was made of Section 403 in the third restatement, which is this is open-ended and basically leaves so much discretion to the courts, is one to which the the realist response would have been, yes, and it's meant to do that. It is meant to tell courts what they should look to, how they should think about cases. It is not meant to tell courts where, uh, where they should come out. So I think it seems to me the, the large task in their statement is not to say these are the results because results may change, but this is the structure within which we th should think about the law. And that's especially important in an area like foreign relations law, which a lot of judges and practitioners just do not know very well the same struggle in, in, in conflict of laws. The early restatements on, on contracts, property, etc. those were areas with which judges dealt a lot. So they knew how to think about contract. And all they had to see was how does that relate to how others think about this. In areas like foreign relations law, the courts don't know very much. Certainly the lower courts are confused about many of these areas. The Supreme Court, I would say, is confused in some of these areas. I think it ran in the presumption against extraterritoriality, which this is related to, it ran into a doctrine that it realizes it does not fully uh, master the way it's applied in Bell, no matter how one comes out in substance, is quite confused. The court is not sure what to do with that. And so one task, and I think in many ways the restatement does very admirably, is to provide guidance, structural guidance to say how, how should we think about such cases. Now, in the area that Hannah and I look at, which is the limitations on the extraterritorial application of federal law, um, the restatement does provide such a guidance, but it provides it by switching canons of interpretation, I think, as Bill now puts it, to say the court used to look at this in terms of uh, reasonableness, or maybe didn't, but the third restatement looked at it in terms of reasonableness, limitations, and now we look at it in terms of presumption of, against extraterritoriality. And so we have to switch the canon for this. And also, I think, maybe prefer the new canon because the old canon was a multi-factor case-by-case test, which is very unattractive. And the new one is, uh, is more categorical. It is clearer, and so it maybe is also preferable for that. I think, um, I think that's, a, that, that's a position that's... Um, problematic in a number of ways. One way in which it's problematic is a, is a political form for me. The court has taken a strongly anti-regulatory position, not just in foreign relations law, but in other areas as well. I would say that the use of the presumption against extraterritoriality is primarily driven by anti-regulatory um, impetus, and that means a, a, a political one, if you want, not a structural one. 
And so it's problematic to depoliticize the doctrine, so to speak, and say this is just a doctrinal issue. It is not also um, one that lays down positions in the distinction that I made before to say we should provide structures and not just um, uh, positions. But I also think that uh, there are two more aspects. That is, first, the presumption against extraterritoriality works differently, fundamentally differently, from what the old Section 403 was. They're both paired under ideas of comity, but they're really different, and I'll try to explain how. And second, the presumption against extraterritoriality is, for a number of reasons, a very un, uh, badly equipped instrument to deal with, uh, uh, with the problems. So um, what happened in this area, to go back very briefly at some of the prehistory, I won't go into the current case law, we claim that the Supreme Court has not given up 403, and we show, I think, that lower courts use something like this, so I'll just ask you to, to, to trust us, and if not, to wait till my research assistant has faked the evidence for that. Um, <laughs> but if we look back at discussions in the 20th century on extraterritorial application, and if we just go from um, American Banana to Alcoa to uh, the Third Restatement, we find that Amer American Banana with strict territoriality has a problem of under-regulation, Alcoa with uh, uh, extraterritoriality that is uh, categorical, runs the risk, certainly at the time, of um, over-regulation. And so what the third restatement tries to do is to hit the optimal level of regulation between under and over-regulation. It cares about that. And second, cares about relations with other states. The second, the first aspect I think is important from the perspective of uh, levels of regulation. The second aspect is important because it's a significantly, it's a categorically different approach to make this bilateral as opposed to making this unilateral. Uh, the territoriality principle and the presumption against extraterritoriality are unilateral approaches. If we say Congress uh, is presumed to uh, legislate with domestic interests in mind, I find that a bizarre formulation because it leaves open what we mean by domestic, and especially why domestic would be territorial. But that's unilateral, right? That tries to find out what did Congress have in mind. It, it does not at all look at how does what Congress had in mind with regard to its own regulation, how does that relate to regulatory interests and scopes, etc., uh, et of other uh, states. So this is what we say in conflict of laws. This is a scope rule. It is not a conflicts rule. It's a rule that unilaterally lays down what the outer scope is of a statute. It does not determine as between two laws which of those should apply. Now, of course, in federal law, we don't usually apply foreign law. So the, even a bilateral rule in result would only lead to a decline of application of federal law and otherwise say whether others regulate this or not. So in that sense, the outcome of even a reasonableness rule still does not lead to the application of the foreign law. But what goes into the rule is an acknowledgement of the actual conflict with a foreign law as the reason for the restraint. So in the traditional test, we'd say the first step, first step is to say, what's the scope of the statute on its own? Would it normally reach the conduct in question? And then if that conflicts with foreign regulatory uh, uh, interest. In a second step, we would say, what, how do we resolve this conflict? Do we have to restrain further or do we not? In conflict of laws, everyone does that. Even interest analysis, even Brainerd Curry allows for that second step to a limited uh, degree. What we have in the Supreme Court, I think, and unfortunately also uh, to some extent in the restatement, at least before 405 came in, was to say we give up the second step. 
So we have no actual rule before we had 405 that deals with actual conflicts when they arise. And that seems to be overreaching. It seems to be the uh, Alcoa problem. But in fact, it's the counter problem because it means then all the weight is on the first step. All the weight is on the scope provision. So we have to formulate scope provisions that are so strictly limiting on federal law to make sure that the second step never becomes relevant. We make sure that on the first step, regulatory law in the US so rarely crosses borders in the first place that we don't ever run into the problem of conflicts. So rather than overreaching, this is an approach that is strongly uh, underreaching. So we think one reason we need something like reasonableness is to allow for conflicts resolutions in cases in which the presumption against extraterritoriality does not uh, uh, grasp, either because it is uh, refuted or because it doesn't apply. And that's one reason, that's to avoid overregulation. But more importantly, I think we need it so courts have an instrument other than the crude presumption against extraterritoriality to allow federal law to reach conduct that Congress wants to reach and that does not bother other states because they have no regulatory interests in those areas. So when the court now says we don't need an actual conflict in order to restrict federal law, that is going further than the court would have to do. And Empergran is a bad precedent for that because Empergran has the curious uh, counterfactual fact pattern that the court assumes, which is this is an entirely domestic case. Domestic plaintiffs, domestic uh, conduct, domestic effects, and domestic um, defendants because they carve out, because they, they separate markets and they say we're only looking at the US market separately from others. So Empergran, on which the restatement relies a lot, is, is actually very bad. A precedent for that. So that's the one problem with that. The one need for reasonableness is really to allow for a subtler instrument than the one that we have. The second, as I said, is that the presumption against extraterritoriality is a curious device in a deterritorialized world. It would be proper to say we try to find out actual congressional intent and derive from that the scope instead of presuming something about territoriality that in many, in many situations just doesn't uh, hit. What does that mean for the restatement? The restatement did enter uh, section 405, which I think is very valuable for those reasons. Um, it enters 405 as an instrument of statutory interpretation, which I think is unfortunate because this is not a matter of interpretation of the statute, it's a matter of application of the statute. But there's a common law tradition of doing these things through interpretation, I think that's fine. I think what's really lacking, what's a huge problem with regard to 405, is it gives no guidance. So what 403 in the old restatement tried to do, which is to lay down in some detail, here's how you do this, here's what you have to consider, here's what you do in a conflict, etc. None of this is there. 405 has become a kind of fill-in to say sometimes courts do all kinds of random stuff to restrict federal law even further. And so there's no guidance for courts from this. And that's what I really miss in the restatement. Maybe that's also because the provision came in very late. That's what would have been really necessary and helpful, I think, to show courts. First, there are two steps. One is scope and one is resolution of conflicts. And second, in more detail, here's how you can think about the resolution of conflicts in substantiated ways. I don't think that needs to be a multi-factor test. Um, I don't, uh, we still have to do the job of interpreting the case material that we have before us. And I think courts need something 
better than an open list of factors. We believed in those in the 70s and 80s, and those are more problematic today maybe, but I think courts absolutely would need more guidance than what they get uh, from Section 405, and that is for me, and I think also for Hannah, still one of the shortcomings of, of the restatement for the reasons that I laid out, and I hope that the work of uh, restating that part can still be done outside the restatement if it hasn't been done in the restatement. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to Austin Parrish. Great. Thanks so much. Well, uh, let me begin by thanking Paul for the kind invitation to the colloquium and uh, particularly to thank uh, Paul and Bill and Anthea for the, uh, uh, for the collegiality. Um, it's, uh, I don't take a position that's in praise of, of the outcome, and so I, I appreciate that sort of engagement. Uh, although after yesterday's presentation, at least I'm not attacking the entire LAI, so I'm, I'm fairly modest. Um, you know, the issue that I'm addressing is whether uh, public international law uh, constrains a judicatory jurisdiction in any way. Um, my position is that public international law does not have a separate exemption uh, for the judiciary, um, and the restatement believes differently uh, that uh, judicial uh, act state power is treated in a different way. Um, I'm going to lay that in three ways. First, I'm going to set out a little bit about why I think the law is not settled in this area, sufficient to say that adjudicatory jurisdiction is not regulated under international law. Um, second, I want to explain why I think the evidence being used for customary international law changes the way that international law traditionally looks at jurisdictional questions. And then third, what I want to do is tie some of the comments in my paper to sort of broader themes, particularly uh, some of the, uh, the um, uh, concerns raised in Gary Bourne's paper from, from yesterday. Um, before I do that, two preliminary things. Uh, so similar to what Ralph just said, um, on whether descriptive or prescriptive in the nature or purpose of restatements, uh, yesterday, you know, we heard quite a bit that the goal behind the fourth restatement was to be modest in its, its approach, uh, to uh, hit the middle or the center, uh, be measured and cautious for strategic reasons, uh, so not as to overreach, which was believed to be a problem with the third restatement. I'm perfectly happy with, with accepting that approach as being, being right. Um, I think the overreach here, though, is the opposite, that I think I'm taking the modest consensus position, and I'll explain why that is. The second point I want to raise early on is um, commonly it's, um, I think my position may be misinterpreted as accepting an older, outdated version, right, that I could support my position with law from the 1800s. Uh, I am not doing that. My position is that the modern law of international law, based on sort of the discussions we had with Ajay yesterday, uh, has focused more on the individual. But that focus on the individual, no matter which way you say the limits are, are ones that have constrained state power and not enlarged it. And so uh, even if you have a nation-state sort of theory of, of jurisdiction, that can be entirely consistent with a, a theory that protects international human rights and, in fact, uh, broad state power that undermines self-determination in other countries is actually antithetical to modern changes uh, in, in human rights law. And I'll explain that more in a second. So quickly, let me do the, the three things. So first, um, what's my burden to suggest that perhaps the fourth restatement might have this wrong? So when I'm in the luxury position that I actually don't need to prove that I'm right, that public international limits uh, adjudicatory jurisdiction, all I need to do is establish that it's unclear because my position is that the fourth restatement should have, and this is taking the reporters at their word, it should have been, uh, should only state a position that is clearly established, that is cautious in its approach. Um, it's pretty clear to me that the public international law system provides some limits on state 
state power in whatever form it takes. And it doesn't distinguish between different kinds of jurisdiction in that broad construct. Now, it certainly plays out differently in specific contexts, which is why we have judicatory jurisdiction prescriptive, or even as public international lawyers, we break it up into prescriptive jurisdiction, enforcement jurisdiction. But a fundamental assumption with public international law is that public international law itself is a definer of state sovereignty, and it defines jurisdiction, which means that any kind of state power is within its purview. Um, my position isn't a, an unusual one. In fact, if you look at almost any public international law course, you look at Brownlee, you look at Lowe, um, you look at any of the major treatises, and it starts off with the idea that there needs to be at least some link or connection uh, between the state and the person or activity being regulated in order for there to be a legitimate uh, basis under public international law to act. Now what that link consists of is highly contested and has not been developed in the adjudicatory jurisdiction context, but it is uniform um, in the treatises that there must be some link. It's not just the treatises itself, it's the restatement in the ALI. And so the third restatement, although it is certainly clear, and I agree with Bill, that the question of whether reasonableness was an appropriate sort of formulation of international law, there was no dispute that adjudicatory jurisdiction was governed by international law in the third restatement. And certainly that was true in the second restatement, although the second restatement did not address adjudicatory jurisdiction specifically because it saw it subsumed and subordinate to prescriptive jurisdiction, enforcement jurisdiction, as those terms are used in public international law context, it was clear that adjudicatory jurisdiction had some limits. And although not talking specifically about public international law, the ALI and UNIDRO in the principles of transnational procedure describe state practice as the generally accepted standard being that there must be some link between the activity and the person for adjudicatory jurisdiction to exist. That's also not a standard that's also set up by international law. It's also one that was believed in the United States. And so if you look at the early literature around uh, Penoyer, it was clearly drawn from Justice Story's work, which was derived from international law. And even the minimum context test with international shoe under the modern approach is believed to have reflective and be representative of, interna of, of international law. Um, even if you don't agree with that, you look at most commentators of the last couple of years, um, whether that's uh, uh, Cedric Reingard and his uh, book on international jurisdiction, whether that's Alex Mills and his two recent pieces on jurisdiction under international law, whether it's uh, Professor Michael's position on um, uh, recently, uh, Trey Childress, most people that have written about it have either concluded that adjudicatory jurisdiction is constrained by public international law, or at most that it's unclear. And so I would submit that given that, even if you don't agree but you believe it's unclear, it's hard to reach the position that it is established in clear law that adjugatory jurisdiction does not have some constraint, although those constraints may be ill-defined. And so that's my particular position, that just looking broadly at what the third restatement and the practice of 30 years after the third restatement, the key language from all the basic public international law treaties, the recent analysis by commentators on it, there's at least dispute in this area, if not public international law provides some requirement of some link or genuine connection or nexus. But let's say you don't want to rely on what other people are saying, but instead you want to look uh, at the custom itself and the state practice in opinio juris, which is what I understand to be the primary argument, that there's not clear state practice in opinio juris that shows that, uh, uh, that public international law provides some constraints. If that's the way you do it, then traditionally in order to prove that, you need to prove state practice and opinion yours to show that states believe as a matter of law that there is universal civil jurisdiction. 
It is not sufficient to show that some states ignore the limits of international law at times, but rather the way that jurisdiction works in the public international law system is you have to prove a particular rule that has become custom. That's certainly how they do it in prescriptive jurisdiction context, right? If you look at prescriptive jurisdiction, as the restatement says, there's specific areas, territoriality, nationality, maybe universality, where there's debates about where the customers coalesce that allow specific areas for where you have jurisdiction. The reverse does not occur. You do not say that jurisdiction exists carte blanche unless we can show a custom that provides a limitation. And based on that, and in fact based on a large number of commentators believe that's the right approach, that you need to show a particular custom showing permission to use it, we would need to show state practice of universal civil jurisdiction in all contexts. And it's clear that's not the case. At best, there's discussion of whether there's universal jurisdiction in the human rights context for egregious international crimes. But I've heard nobody argue and no state argue that there's universal jurisdiction and over uh, generic uh, uh, contract claims between citizens. And I think that's the evidence that you would need. Now the response that adjugatory jurisdiction would be different is just not the way that public international law treats it. It's certainly fine, I think, in the restatement to have the different categories to better understand the contours of that. But under traditional public international law, the restraint on state action occurs in whatever form that state action takes. And traditionally under public international law, the way that you treat jurisdictional questions of how you establish custom is essentially the same too. That most commentators, not all, but most commentators believe that you need to have a specific custom showing permission to exercise a particular jurisdictional box ahead of jurisdiction, not the opposite. Even if you don't agree with that, then the question is, is the evidence that the Brussels Convention and a couple of others, or Brussels Regulation, um, has exceeded perhaps the limits uh, where at least certain circumstances they say there's no link required, does that prove that universal civil jurisdiction exists? And I would say no. In fact, under the International Court of Justice's cases, normally that would be evidence at least initially of a breach of international law, not as to be assumed to be the new customary rule in itself, given that we had practice at some point where everybody seemed to agree that there was a, uh, a custom. And so having uh, some states sort of ignore international rules equally evidence of breach each of the norm than it is of establishing a new custom. But even if that wasn't the case, you still wouldn't have sufficient evidence to be able to show that certain indications of ignoring the limits of international law itself creates a new norm. Um, because uh, just because a state ignores the limits in certain circumstances is equally indicative that the limits and the contours of that international law are limited. Uh, as much as it is that there is no limit at all. And that's what I believe is that there's lots of discussion over what the contours are and those are not entirely clear. But there's not a lot of debate, I think, broadly out there among public international law scholars that there is in fact some limit, although it might be incredibly modest. Let me also make a point here. I'm not debating that U.S. practice, and I think this goes to Thomas's paper, foreign relations practice, that U.S. courts actually pay attention to international law in this context. I think they don't. I think that's right. Um, but here I'm taking issue with, the, uh, with that this is a statement of public international law or a statement of international law rather than just a reflection of uh, U.S. practice. Um, um, so let me just recap there. So if the question is, is there custom to show that the international norm has changed, that the treatises have it wrong, that the third restatement had it wrong, that the second restatement has it wrong, that the current commentators have it wrong, you need more than a certain evidence of states actually in certain instances uh, exceeding the limits. Instead, you need to have uniform state practice and opinio juris of universal civil jurisdiction. 
and I have no evidence of that. In fact, the Unidrote and uh, ALI principles suggest just the opposite, that the state practice and opinion of yours is generally that people believe that some link has to exist. Okay, now let me take it back to a broader position as to why I think this is important. Um, so for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's problematic that a structural principle that is foundational to our public international law system is, is essentially wiped out, in part because of the importance of the 4-3 statement. And, and so I think it, it leads to even worse situations of the U.S. courts not considering international law at all in their uh, equation, even if their consideration there would be fairly small. But there's a bigger point, uh, and this goes a little bit to uh, uh, what Gary's Bourne papers talks about, although I slightly disagree. Uh, so I think uh, uh, Gary begins with the idea that the U.S. courts do not pay a lot of attention to international law, which I agree with. His example of that, or evidence of that, is the U.S. withdrawing from unilateral extraterritorial uh, regulation in recent years. And I think that's a mistake. Um, I think broad extraterritorial unilateral regulation, unilateral not in the sense of choice of law, but unilateral in the sense of not through a multilateral bilateral process, but rather just through pure politics of saying the U.S. can do it because we can do it, uh, that that is not a complementary system to international law, but that is often a system that competes with and undermines the development of international law, particularly in the commercial area. And so I think it's a mistake to think that broad extraterritorial enforcement of U.S. antitrust law is itself international law. To me, it's not. It's a competing system. And the evidence seems to be fairly clear that moving to more unilateral extraterritorial application, particularly when that unilateral application involves only U.S. law and not incorporation of international norms through that U.S. law, right? So you can put aside, let's say, ATS actions for a second, where you might say that that's actually implementing international law. But in pure U.S extraterritorial regulation, that that is actually competing with and seems to undermine the ability to harmonize international law because it takes the pressure off a of multilateral engagement. Uh, and if that's the, if that is true, and uh, there's there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that might be true in a number of, of cases, then that's problematic that we give the courts even broader ability to regulate abroad. And so to me, I think it's problem problematic that we allow uh, a court to say that they have jurisdiction over anybody anywhere. The bigger problem is it's not really in our self-interest. We have constitutional protections anyway. So what we're really worried about is the expansion of other courts being able to assert that they have jurisdiction over anybody anywhere under no limitations without a constitutional backdrop like the 14th Amendment that limits our court's ability. And that goes then exactly to what uh, Gary Bourne's position is, which is concern about the expansion and of overseas litigation that then has an impact on us. I think essentially what's happened is that the rest of the world has been tired of fighting the United States, arguing that broadest forms of extraterritorial relation, uh, regulation violates international law and has got on the bandwagon to say, fine, we're going to do it too. And so even countries that for many, many years was opposed to that have now embraced it uh, dramatically. And I think that's a problem for U.S. interests over the long term. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Our ne uh, next on our list is Tom Lee. So I'm gonna, um Apart from my own remarks, to respond a little bit to to what um, Ralph and Austin have said, um, I think it, it's pretty clear that the primary audience of the restatements are the U.S. courts, principally the U.S. federal courts, and those who who litigate before them. And um, I think, with regards to Austin's comments, I mean, I wonder. I, I don't know what the plans are for Volume Two, but certainly, obviously. 
as I say in my own remarks, uh, what we've seen with regards to this product is clearly about the, the, the law of the U.S. federal courts um, as a domestic autonomous legal order. And it's a, it's a change from the way the, the third restatement was designed. Um, and, and so perhaps one way to resolve this tension is to, is to have a volume two, that is international law as it applies to the United States, and there sort of um, um, put in things such as jurisdictional principles, um, the different treaties that are particularly relevant to the United States. I think, like, for example, the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, which supercharged the FCPA. New York Convention. Um, it's very interesting to see the extent to which uh, I, I was thinking back to the the second restatement uh, and and its concern with fisheries, of course, which which you know the Soviets were starting to to um, fish ocean perch, if I recall correctly, in the in the in the in the northern Pacific. Uh, and so there are still international treaties, customary international law rules that are relevant to the United States. They just don't involve the same subjects. Um, that they used to. I mean, a lot of it's financial stuff. Um, uh, when, when I teach U.S. foreign relations law, we sign papers and uh, sanctions. Um, I remember there was a student who, who was a Korean student who was talking about secondary sanctions and, and the pressure that the United States puts on um, South Korea, which has very close relations with Iran. Uh, to, to stay in line with sanctions and so forth. So it seems to me that basically part of what could be done is to have a volume two that takes that other piece of international law as it relates to the United States and makes these statements very clear. And, 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 and in a way, that would put volume one into perspective as much more of a, of a, of a manual for um, U.S. courts and the litigants who practice before them dealing with questions of U.S. law that reflect and deal with foreign parties and interests. So, um, you know, with, with Ralph's point, um, I, I'm in complete agreement and, and you know, um, I'm writing an article about cleaning up the 11 or 12 factors of the reasonableness test that has developed in the lower courts and saying, actually, uh, 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 we are not in the 70s or 80s anymore. Um, these 11 factor tests seem like loud uh, synthetic suits. Um, so we're trying to articulate a three or four factor test that is much more in line with present sensibilities. But, but we believe very strongly, you know, um, I, or I believe very strongly that basically the Supreme Court should not have a monopoly on this because there's all kinds of, in terms of dictating form non conveniens or whatever, that basically uh, cases involving foreign affairs come up in, in, in various shapes and weird patterns, which, which I've seen increasingly in practice in, in the Southern District. And so the courts, the lower courts have to have flexibility in, in, in trying to manage traffic control over these cases. And I think Bill and others, um, it, it's valid to think that in many instances, um, what the federal courts, lower federal courts are doing is just throwing up their hands and saying, oh, we wanna get rid of this case. Uh, but I don't think it's, 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 it takes two, important an instrument away from them to say that basically you, you only should put these cases into the boxes of the settled doctrines that the Supreme Court has baptized, right? Because the reality is that the lower federal courts see, see a lot of different types of cases. Um, and then I'm gonna have, um, I'm, I'm gonna mouth the heretical statement perhaps because one of the most influential 
aspects of the restatements on foreign relations going back to the second and 65 was, was this articulation of prescriptive adjudicative enforcement jurisdiction. And I think it was Gene who mentioned that this goes back to the Harvard project from, from, from 100 years ago. But maybe it's time has come. I mean, in some sense, it, it reminds me, when I teach civil procedure, I always talk about specific and general jurisdiction. And it's a, it's a conceptual dis difference that captured imaginations, has done a lot of work. But to some extent, um, it sort of enforces an intellectual tidiness that doesn't necessarily um, stay faithful to what's happening on the ground. And I think that the, the crucial example is this fault line between 403 and the old restatement and 405. Uh, prescriptive jurisdiction, and this is something that I mentioned in my own remarks, prescriptive jurisdiction in the black letter of the third restatement clearly included ju judicial common law making power, right? And, and, and in fact, um, one of the themes is that this was sort of um, in a, in a, in a um, coy way, I mean, that this was sort of a major theme of, of the third restatement that basically uh, and, and, you know, Philartica is the poster child of this approach, but that federal judges should engage in international law, that they should be rights protective, um, and, 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 and um, you know, sort of be, be active in, in protecting international human rights. And I think that, that um, the, the time for that type of, of view has has passed and 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 again the ATS cases sort of show the evolution of this um, with regards to Philartiga was in, in 1980 uh, Sosa 24 years later sort of tried to slow it down uh, and then um, Jesner I mean strike that not Jesner but uh, uh, Kayabel nine years later puts the touch and concern US territory um, sort of puts a, um, a counterintuitive um, territorial gloss on the alien tort statute, and then finally Jesner uh, closes the door with regards to, to corporate liability. And, you know, it, and we've had a lot of this discussion yesterday. Is it, is it, should the, should the restatement try to fight that trend, um, uh, trend or, or should it capture it? And I, and I sort of think that the restatement did a, the fourth does a pretty good job of, of trying to to manage that, although I, I, I do take a quibble with the universal jurisdiction note um, that it mentions the ATS, because I think after Kybell, it's very hard to see how, why that's still there. Um, so, so to some extent, and, and then this, this is going back to the, the artificiality, the dif distinction between prescriptive and adjudicative. Once you acknowledge that lawmaking could be done by judges, that judges have prescriptive jurisdiction as well. Uh, which is the norm in admiralty, for example, then the concept of judicative jurisdiction um, becomes hard to distinguish from prescriptive jurisdiction. And that's why I think that, that basically, um, you know, Scalia is the one sort of leading the charge, saying there's a definite distinction between prescriptive comedy, prescriptive jurisdiction, and judicative jurisdiction and judicative comedy. But that uh, seemed to me sort of a an artificial distinction in the same sense that the distinction between specific general jurisdiction and general jurisdiction in U.S. personal jurisdiction um, cases. Uh, there are some cases where the contacts are related to the cause of action, but not super related. And so it's something in the middle between a, a strict doing business type of jurisdiction or, or something that's unconnected to the cause of action. <laughs> I'm dealing with the case precisely in that basket right now involving trademark infringement um, um, claims against a foreign cryptocurrency 
um, issuer. So anyways, um, so, so that's sort of some of that reaction. And I, and, and I realize that that's heretical because I feel like this, this, these points about jurisdiction were one of the most important mm -hmm. points um, that really hit home, not just among US courts, but, but globally. Um, so, so, so and, I've, and I've already talked about this point, but basically this, this if we agree that the primary audience of the restatement is is U.S. courts, principally federal courts, and the people who litigate before them, um, and and sort of the important message of the restatement third is international law is your friend. It it constrains what you can do, and you should resort to it, and you should try to to be active in it. And the and the sort of underlying message of this is, you know, there is something called U.S. foreign relations law. Uh, it is independent from international law. Don't be afraid of foreign relations cases. You know, um, we have settled ways to handle these. Um, don't, don't, don't stray too far from settled doctrines and, and try to get rid of these cases. I mean, that's probably the right message to send to this primary audience. Um, is, it, is it necessarily, I mean, could, could there have been a different one? Could there have been one that had more hope or, or in this particular environment. Um, you know, it's hard to say, it's, it's hard to say, but anyways, um, that's, and, and I'm sort of, <laughs> my, my, my um, written contribution is as agnostic about where we are. One thing that I, I and I, this is, this is the last comment, I promise. Um, one thing that I've always wondered about the ALI is as, as more of the action has shifted to the reporter's notes and the comments, um, and the black letter has become much more, how should we put it, unobjectionable. Uh, I wonder if, it, it, it looks a lot more like the, the digest or the pandecta uh, than a codification now, and, and perhaps in the style of the pandecta, you should start mentioning Ulpian and Paul or, you know, Bradley, as opposed to you should actually mention who these commentators are uh, so that basically we get an additional reference point as to how to, how to, how to um, 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 evaluate what's happening in the reporter's notes and the comments. Thank you, Tom. Uh, we'll move on to Shaman Kuyper. Um, well, thank you so much, Anne, uh, for being here on a Saturday morning to, <laughs> to chair this panel uh, and to everyone else who's here. Um, for those listening on what I understand may be a podcast, I'm Shimen Keitner from UC Hastings Law in San Francisco. Uh, and I enjoyed listening to the um, quite definitive perspectives that you've heard on this panel so far. Um, I'm going to instead uh, use my time to ask a question uh, that I'd like to explore in the chapter uh, that I've been invited to contribute to this forthcoming volume. Uh, you heard from Austin Parrish about uh, his views on the public international law limits on the exercise of state power uh, outside of a state's borders. Uh, but as you've also heard from Tom, the focus of the restatement so far uh, in this fourth uh, iteration or third iteration denominated fourth uh, is the ways in which uh, U.S. law both interacts with international law um, and also itself constrains the exercise of U.S. state power outside of U.S. borders. Uh, in fact, I think the second definition offered of foreign relations mm -hmm. law, uh, which is cribbed from, I think, Kurt Bradley's volume, uh, is U.S. law 
as it governs how the U.S. interacts with the rest of the world. Uh, and so my question focuses on one aspect of U.S. law that governs or may govern how we interact with the rest of the world. Uh, you've heard about the presumption against extraterritoriality. You've heard about the imperiled reasonableness test. Uh, and I'd like to talk about the U.S. Constitution. Uh, so as you well know, the Constitution's uh, Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments contain due process clauses that have been interpreted uh, as limiting the reach of the jurisdiction of federal uh, and state courts. By and large, uh, judicial opinions interpreting and applying the due process clause uh, have focused on the 14th Amendment. Uh, and by and large, uh, when federal exercises of adjudicatory authority are at issue, uh, courts have indicated that they are applying the Fifth Amendment, uh, but essentially doing so uh, by looking to previously articulated 14th Amendment standards. In fact, the third restatement at section 721 uh, in reporter's note six, continuing the theme of the uh, value in the reporter's notes, uh, observes, quote, that the meaning and scope of due process have developed largely in the application of the clause of the 14th Amendment governing action by the states but it is established that due process has essentially the same meaning and scope in the Fifth Amendment as applied to the federal government. While this proposition is not one uh, that the US Congress currently accepts, uh, and we don't know whether it is in fact established because our Supreme Court hasn't definitively told us one way or the other. Uh, in fact, uh, the question has been raised in a number of cases, but because it hasn't been outcome determinative, uh, the court has specifically reserved the question uh, as recently as uh, 2017 in the Bristol-Myers-Squibb versus Superior Court case, uh, the court explicitly left open, quote, the question whether the Fifth Amendment imposes the same restrictions on the exercise of personal jurisdiction by a federal court as the 14th Amendment does. So the abstract question, uh, abstract conceptual question uh, that I'd like to pose is, uh, does the reach of federal adjudicative jurisdiction in, in the language that we've been using, uh, is it necessarily coextensive with the reach of federal prescriptive jurisdiction? Looking at our international law bases for the exercise of jurisdiction, uh, we know that there's a category called passive personality jurisdiction uh, that the third restatement told us is disfavored. Uh, but the US does exercise in several places passive personality jurisdiction, uh, notably, uh, for my purposes anyway, uh, in a statute referred to as the Anti-Terrorism Act, in which it provides uh, a civil remedy for acts of international terrorism as defined by the statute. Uh, that cause injury or death uh, to Americans, even if uh, those acts happen overseas. As you can imagine, a number of cases have been litigated based on uh, this grant of a cause of action. And to the claimant's uh, dismay, have been dismissed at the circuit level uh, for lack of personal jurisdiction over the alleged terrorist defendants. Uh, in particular in the Livnat case in the DC Circuit and uh, what became known as the Sokolo case coming out of the Second Circuit, uh, the DC Circuit and the Second Circuit have found uh, consistent with 
by the way, the uh, third restatement language that I read you earlier, although not citing it, uh, that its job was to uh, interpret and apply the Fifth Amendment due process clause, and that it could do so by looking to Fourteenth Amendment jurisprudence, uh, which, as many of you know, has become increasingly restrictive of the exercise of U.S. jurisdiction over foreign entities uh, without substantial contacts to the United States. Uh, and so in both of those cases, uh, the circuit court said that the United States uh, could not, in fact, or federal courts could not exercise jurisdiction uh, over the Palestinian Authority for uh, injuries or deaths of Americans in and around uh, Israel and Palestine. Congress took note, uh, and in fact, uh, when the Sokolow opinion from the Second Circuit uh, was uh, brought before the Supreme Court as a, um, a cert petition, uh, Congress weighed in uh, very uh, um, heavily in the form of a number of amicus briefs saying uh, essentially uh, that their intent in enacting the Anti-Terrorism Act had clearly been to reach conduct such as uh, the attacks uh, at issue in these cases, and therefore it was essentially the obligation of the federal courts to give effect to that intent uh, by finding personal jurisdiction over these defendants. By denying cert, uh, the Supreme Court, of course, uh, neither endorsed nor rejected uh, that proposition. But to be on the safe side, Congress went back to the, the drawing board uh, and enacted in 2018 the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act. Uh, which contains a number of provisions, but the one I'd like to focus on is Section 4, uh, which is entitled Consent of Certain, Party, certain, persons, uh, sorry, certain Parties to Personal Jurisdiction. Uh, the ins and outs of this provision are somewhat convoluted because uh, they target specific parties, <laughs> uh, even though they don't come out and say it, uh, in particular parties that are recipients of U.S. foreign assistance uh, and or that have uh, a presence in the United States uh, in the form of an office or facility uh, pursuant to a specific type of waiver. Uh, and again, this is a for those of you who, who get into the weeds, a waiver that um, had been given to the PLO to maintain an office in D.C., uh, but that has been uh, withdrawn, and so that provision so far uh, would not be operative. But the foreign affair assistance provision, um, depending on what day of the week it is, uh, may be uh, in play with respect to these defendants. The interesting phrasing of this uh, provision, as you heard, is consent of certain parties to personal jurisdiction. And indeed, the legal fiction that the uh, provision uh, establishes uh, is that the acceptance of foreign assistance or the establishment of an office pursuant to a waiver uh, will be deemed to constitute consent to personal jurisdiction. So my abstract question is even broader than the specific provision. Um, my abstract question really uh, picks up on a, a sentence in the House report accompanying the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act that again reflects uh, language in some of the briefs filed uh, in the Sokolow cert petition. Uh, that carrying out or assisting an act of international terrorism that injures or kills American citizens abroad should be, in and of itself, sufficient to establish personal jurisdiction in U.S. courts. Um, but I mentioned the Anti-Terrorism Clarification Act provision to give you a sense concretely uh, of what this could look like and maybe to indicate that, um, at least in this first instance, Congress is tethering 
uh, this notion a little bit more closely to some sort of presumed uh, constructive consent than its broader language and broader claims to be able to essentially create federal jurisdiction based on, uh, in this case, injuries uh, to American citizens, or in the language of some of the amicus briefs, uh, legislation that implicates any, quote, vital U.S. interest. All right. So, so what do we make of this? Uh, and the answer is, is going to turn in any particular case uh, on at least two inquiries. Uh, the first inquiry, of course, is going to relate to the nature of the defendant. Is the defendant, in fact, a person uh, within the meaning of the Fifth Amendment due process clause? So far, all we know is that uh, sovereign states within our federal system are not considered persons under the Fifth Amendment due clause due process clause, um, but we've not been told that any other category uh, is exempted. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating question. It's one that the parties briefed uh, in these cases, and I invite you to ponder it. Um, but my focus is really the second question, which is taking uh, as a given that an entity uh, or a natural person, for that matter, is a person uh, for Fifth Amendment purposes. Do we simply uh, cut and paste the 14th Amendment inquiry into our Fifth Amendment analysis? Or is there some room for an argument that uh, the federal government has uh, a little bit more wiggle room in its assertion of jurisdiction abroad? Uh, we obviously don't have the problems that we discussed yesterday of trying to discern congressional intent. That's uh, eminently clear here. Uh, so the question is, does congressional intent run up against any uh, applicable limits, and in particular, does it run up against Fifth Amendment limits? Now, the federal government uh, has not taken a, a definitive position on what exactly the limits of Fifth Amendment uh, due process uh, are. Um, it does uh, take the position that there may be some difference between Fifth and Fourteenth uh, Amendment jurisdiction, and of course recognizes that under the Fifth Amendment, courts will generally take into account uh, a defendant's contacts with the United States as a whole, uh, and not just a particular state in which the court is based. Um, but beyond that, we really don't have any clear articulation of what the difference in these two standards might be. Of course, uh, the federal government also uh, exercises jurisdiction uh, other than through uh, the civil adjudicatory jurisdiction of our federal courts. Uh, so in thinking about how to formulate a Fifth Amendment standard, uh, one also needs to take into account other potential exercises of jurisdiction by the federal government. Um, and this is something that uh, the petitioners in uh, these cases are very attuned to, uh, warning that too restrictive a definition of uh, the scope of personal jurisdiction under the Fifth Amendment could jeopardize uh, federal enforcement efforts uh, in various types of actions uh, that entail overseas entities. It is worth noting, of course, that at least with respect to natural persons, uh, we do have a physical presence requirement for actually adjudicating criminal cases. Uh, and so uh, one of the challenges I'd love to explore is uh, you know, what kind of Fifth Amendment standard uh, might be appropriate to articulate, what the differences between the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment uh, might be, uh, and importantly, what the implications of a particular answer uh, to that question would be across a range of uh, activities that reach beyond U.S. borders. Thank you. Um, thank you. Our, our list is Bill Budge, Paul Stephen, Pierre Verdier, Ed Swain, John Harrison. Um, 
I believe Bill Dodge has a, a comment on Ralph Michaels. Uh, and we'll start with him. If anyone else wants to comment on Michaels, we can take that person. Well, I actually have, um, thank you. Uh, these are four fascinating papers. Okay. I'd love to talk about all of them, but I will limit myself to Ralph and Austin. Um, and Anna, if you want me to just do Ralph and then get other people on Ralph, and, or if you want me to do both. It, I'll go ahead and do both. All right. <laughs> um, so uh, you can see from Ralph's comments why, despite his self-deprecation, he was an incredibly um, uh, important and valuable advisor. Um, and there's much that Ralph said that I agree with. Uh, he's right that one necessarily interprets materials um, when one does a restatement. Um, I think I also agree with Ralph that the aim of the restatement is to provide a structure for thinking about the law. Um, and um, I also agree fundamentally with his criticism of the presumption as being anti-regulatory. I think that's exactly right. But I would counter that we were not free to disregard the presumption against extraterritoriality and, um, uh, and substitute something that we might think was normatively better. And if one is stuck with the presumption against extraterritoriality, there is then a danger of supplementing that presumption with other limits on jurisdiction um, uh, that will tend in an even more anti-regulatory vein. Um, which I know Ralph is aware of, but I think may be underappreciating here. Um, there's certainly, within the context of the discussions about reasonableness at the ALI, there was certainly support for uh, limiting principles that went beyond Ralph and Hanna, but there were views on the other side too. And one of the, the difficulties that the reporters faced was trying to reconcile just the, the different views within the advisors. Um, and um, we did that in part by focusing on what the Supreme Court had done and what the Supreme Court had said. Um, lower courts are relevant, but we felt that we needed to fit them within the framework of what the Supreme Court had done. And the Empegran case really loomed quite large, and the Empegran case expressly rejected case-by-case -case balancing. So, um, and Empegran and, and even the presumption cases are not 5-4 decisions. Um, this Empegrand uh, is Breyer, who one might think is the most receptive, or would be the most receptive, uh, to this sort of approach. Um, finally, my final comment with respect to, so that's sort of a defense of where we landed with respect to 405 and, and why we didn't endorse a, um, a, a 403 sort of approach. Uh, I, I agree that one of the, the drawbacks of 405 is that it, doesn't give guidance. I would spin it more positively that it allows for further development. Um, and I, I look forward to the articles that Ralph and Hannah and Tom are going to write to tell courts how to apply 405, because I think that's a very valuable project. Um, I would endorse what Tom said, that I think if you have more, the more factors you have, the less guidance you actually give. And the more you enable courts to um, decide not to apply U.S. law based on some gut reaction, which they then dress up in a bunch of factors. And I think that's not helpful. Um, and that we do, to the extent we're going to take a multilateral approach that takes into account conflicts with other nations, we need to provide a shorter and clearer list of factors than the restatement third did. 
So um, let me turn then briefly to Austin. Um, you know, I think my fundamental disagreement, Austin and I have talked about this separately as well, and I think our fundamental disagreement really boils down to a starting position. I think Austin would say the starting position is you need some basis for, under customary international law, you need some basis for exercising any kind of jurisdiction. Um, and you need a general and consistent practice of states to show that. Um, and, and my starting position really is, I think, um, the Lotus position. And I will qualify that because uh, that provides an opening for Austin to attack me vigorously. So I'm going to be clear of what I mean about that. But I, I think the, the modern positivist customary international law system starts with the idea that there is no customary international law unless we have a general and consistent practice of states supporting it. Now, it is certainly possible that the practice of states could establish a baseline that says that you need permission, you need a permissive rule in order to do something. I think that is what we absolutely see in the area of jurisdiction to enforce, where state practice has established a baseline of strict territoriality. I would say it's even true contrary to what Lotus said in the area of jurisdiction to prescribe. The way states actually behave in this area is that they require a permissive rule. They require a genuine connection, territory effects, active personality, et cetera. Um, and so uh, uh, that's not what Lotus said with respect to prescriptive jurisdiction, but I think that's descriptively true. I think if one looks at jurisdiction to adjudicate, you don't find that state practice has established um, the same baseline. Parenthetically, let me just respond to something that Tom said on this point about the distinction between adjudicative, adjudicative and prescriptive jurisdiction. I do think there's a real difference between the two. Courts do exercise prescriptive jurisdiction when they make rules of common law, but they don't exercise prescriptive jurisdiction when they apply law that has been made by someone else. I think you can see this most clearly in choice of law cases where a court is applying foreign law. There's no way it is exercising jurisdiction to prescribe under those circumstances. It's exercising personal jurisdiction to, to exercise power over parties to declare rights under some law that someone else has prescribed. Um, finally, w just with respect to, we could go through, and I'm sure at some point Austin and I will go through all of the sources that he's cited. Just a couple of quick responses. Um, with respect to the ALI Unidwat principles, you know, they talk about um, state practice, they don't talk about opinio juris, and they don't purport to be restating international law. I think also with respect to many of the commentators um, who uh, have said things about limits on jurisdiction, you, you have to only count those commentators. For, if you accept that there's a separate category of jurisdiction to adjudicate, you only ha the only ones who are really relevant there are those who recognize this distinction. So Ralph thinks there are limits on jurisdiction to adjudicate because he thinks they're the same limits as there are on jurisdiction to prescribe, or at least that's what I took from his blog post. But if you accept that courts aren't always prescribing when they adjudicate, then y you can't say that those are the limits. You have to look at state practice that goes specifically to the adjudicative function. 
Um, and finally, Austin, at many points in your paper, you say, we don't know exactly what the limits are, but we know they exist. I would submit that under, if to the extent the customary international law requires a general and consistent practice of states followed out of sense of legal obligation to establish a rule that would limit adjudicative jurisdiction. If you agree with me to that point, if you can't say what the rules are, that means they don't exist. Well, why don't we uh, have some responses to us? Oh, okay. Oh, okay, three at a time? Okay, you wanna keep? Okay, well then, uh, we'll hear from Paul and Pierre. <laughs> uh, first, I want to, as the John Jeffries Distinguished Professor of Law, I want to note that the Distinguished John Jeffries is in the room, and we're very grateful that he's here. Uh, John was my teacher, is my teacher, remains my teacher, and uh, through me, you know, his influence is throughout this process, so I'm grateful that he's here. Um, uh, I just want to very quickly to, uh, engage a little bit of self-criticism about the restatement and uh, throw a little bit of legislative history, if you will. Uh, I'd love to engage all four presentations. They're all wonderful. But I, I just want to focus in on two points. First, it came up before with G-Day, and Tom raised it again. Why don't we see more uh, references to the past work of the restaters? And it was a conscious and controversial decision. I, I pushed for the, out, the path that we followed, and, and I, not, I know not everyone agreed with this, uh, but they were all good enough to go along. Uh, the idea was, um, rather than being seen as smuggling in our past scholarly, scholarly views, we wanted the restatement to speak for itself. And uh, once it was over, we could, as individual scholars, state our views as what we think it uh, it did. Um, and that may not have been the right decision. Uh, there was a feeling that the third restatement uh, reporters might have done a little too much in the other direction. And so, you know, we were fighting the last war, I guess. Uh, uh, one, about this adjudication and international law point, uh, you know, we were challenged right at the outset, and by we, I mean Bill and I were challenged by Anthea, who as an Anglo-Australian Anglo public international lawyer said, all I know is international law regulation, uh, uh, prescription, and enforcement. I've never understood why this third category existed in the third restatement. It didn't exist in the second restatement. And why shouldn't we go back to the second restatement? And we had a conversation. And where the conversation ended up was the idea that there's a distinction between the function and the institution. So that the rules on prescription, the rules on enforcement apply to whatever governmental actor engages in something that could look like prescription or enforcement. We try to say this clearly in 401. Uh, we probably are guilty of not repeating it again or only relying on cross-references the four aughts and the four twenties where we come back to this. Uh, uh, and I think the criticism, uh, this touches directly on what Bill just said. Uh, we assume, well, we assume two things. First of all, as common lawyers, we took for granted that it's clear that courts often engage in prescriptive jurisdiction. They're making law. 
Uh, and, and I realize for at least some of our colleagues in the civil law world that may not be, it may be clear but not obvious. Uh, and, and to us it seems so obvious that we probably underdefended the point. We also, as Bill just articulated, assume that it's true that it is possible for a court to do something that was neither prescriptive nor enforcement. Uh, the response would be that every litigation act is potentially prescriptive and latently enforcement. It hasn't happened yet, but it will unless the court dismisses the case. And if you're a realist, you'd say simply by taking over the case, you've uh, generated liability for attorney's fees or other kinds of risks. Um, so I think that's the criticism of what we did. Uh, we could have just said uh, courts either adjudicate or enforce international laws apply to both of those activity, full stop. But since we thought the third restatement did something different and we thought as to that different thing, it was unsupported, that is our narrow point and I guess our area of disagreement, particularly with Austin. So oh, uh, this is a topic that's already been uh, uh, covered by uh, Bill and Paul's comments, but I, I want to add a few thoughts about this uh, this question of adjudicative jurisdiction. And uh, uh, so it's addressed to Austin, but uh, but perhaps the other panelists will have thoughts as well. So I'm trying to to place myself from from the perspective of your paper and to think about uh, you know where where does that where does that distinction matter? Where do you think that it would have some bite to say that there are independently existing uh, permissive rules that exist in the area of, uh, of uh, adjudicative, adjudicative jurisdiction? Now, as I see it, in the majority of cases out there in the world, a court will take jurisdiction and apply its own law. So at least the limits on prescriptive jurisdiction will apply on whether this entire exercise is legitimate or not. And it seems to me that the assumption appears to be that if there is a need for uh, some permissive ground to uh, justify the exercise of adjudicative jurisdiction, it is considered to be satisfied by the existence of a, of a legitimate ground for prescriptive jurisdiction in these kinds of cases. So that would be my question number one. Would you accept the idea that in that kind of typical case, the permissive rule, if one is needed, is generally accepted to be that if you have a legitimate ground for prescriptive, prescriptive jurisdiction, it's also okay to adjudicate. Uh, and then the second question is, well, since if, if I'm correct that this describes the majority of cases that arise, then what do we do about the more eccentric sort of, how do we think about the more eccentric sort of cases uh, where there is a disjunction between the two? So the examples that come to mind are uh, cases in which, in which a national court purports to apply uh, international law that is not recognized to be international law that gives rise to universal jurisdiction. Uh, how often does that happen? I don't know. Uh, do we need special rules about that? You know, I don't know. But I can see that as being a circumstance in which the question of adjudicative jurisdiction would arise. Uh, and another uh, type of circumstance is a national court uh, takes jurisdiction over the case but applies foreign law. Uh, and once again, that would raise the question of adjudicative jurisdiction 
separately. Now, how often does this happen? Fairly often. How often do people complain about it? So, it, so with respect to that second category, my question is, would it be sufficient to just say, well, it appears to be uh, generally accepted that if you are correct that uh, a permissive ground of adjudicative, adjudicative jurisdiction is required, everyone seems to kind of agree that the grounds of if the, that, that the grounds of prescriptive jurisdiction also satisfy this. That is, if that court would have had jurisdiction to apply its own law under accepted grounds of prescriptive jurisdiction, then it's also okay for them to apply foreign law or to apply uh, international law that is not universal jurisdiction uh, generating. Uh, or do you think that there is a separate set of principles, out, of permissive principles out there that apply specifically to adjudic adjudicative jurisdiction? And then my question would be, how would we find that out if the only areas in which they have traction are with respect to these fairly eccentric types of cases that don't seem to lead to a lot of discussion of, of jurisdiction or protests by other states? Okay, um, why don't we have... Oh. Ralph Michaels respond, and then, of course, Austin Parrish, a lot of people spoke to your papers. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to make a few responses and make them all short first. point is not to abolish the presumption against extraterritoriality, although I would be very happy if someone else did it. Uh, the point is that it is an extremely crude instrument that errs on the side of over or uh, under-regulation systematically. And so it is important to provide the courts with a useful instrument that takes the pressure from the presumption against extraterritoriality. The point that you made that courts will find ways to get to their desired results is true under the presumption of, against extraterritoriality uh, as well. I would suggest that those who pushed for the presumption pushed for the presumption in order to put in certain preferences that they had. And so we want, in realist fashion, a doctrine that allows more transparency in the actual uh, criteria, and those fit better into, if they are bilateral criteria, they fit better under a different instrument, and that's why I think that needs to be provided in addition. And I don't think that leads to further restrictions. I think it leads to the possibility to take weight away from the presumption against extraterritoriality and to have a more, um, a, a better instrument there. Uh, I'll say one sentence on the question of um, jurisdiction, prescriptive, and enforcement and adjudicatory. I take it to be that from the perspective of international law, which of course I'm not an expert in, in the perspective of sovereignty, there are two things that states can do logically if you want, and one is uh, factual and one is normative. They can have actual actions of physically arresting and they can normatively say you are under the scope of our normativity. And those would be two categories. And in that sense, adjudicatory jurisdiction is also prescriptive jurisdiction because it prescribes with regard to parties before you. It is not a separate category, even though in conflict of laws it's a separate category, but that's because we think about that uh, differently. Does that mean then, thirdly, that the criteria necessarily have to be the same as, 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 as Pierre asked, or at least would you say that when there's legislative jurisdiction, there's also adjudicatory jurisdiction? In conflict of laws, we strongly believe no. I think Ximen's horror example, where Congress says essentially if you kill an American, you've consented to jurisdiction of US courts, also suggests the answer is no. There's clearly legislative jurisdiction. There's not adjudicatory jurisdiction because the way that these doctrines play out is different for different uh, um, uh, contexts. And that's, that's a sense in which we, we, can, we can distinguish, and international law, I think, can also distinguish. But they don't become, I think, different, um, different categories uh, for that. But 
beyond that, I'll leave to, to Austin and, and Shimon for that point. Austin. Maybe I take in reverse. And, uh, so, Pierre, I think that the situations where this comes up, as you identified, is when a foreign court is applying foreign law, when it's applying international law, and those are the two examples. Um, I, I think you're right, that's fairly in a small category of cases, but I don't think it's no cases. And it's certainly, if this becomes accepted by other countries, it could be a way to open up. You know, uh, is it permissible for Canada to adjudicate a cane between a U.S. company and, a, and another U.S. company for conduct and, and activity solely in the United States? I would say no under international law if there's no connection at all. The, the other way, more practically, is it's already come up. Uh, Bill and I, uh, on a case where I think very, you know, very difficult and reasonable minds could differ. Uh, Bill cited the 4-3 statement uh, to combat my argument that international law limited this using the adjudicatory jurisdiction example. And so practically it comes up in, in other contexts. Um, but I, so for your bigger point, I, I agree with, with what Ralph said, but I do think that uh, generally under public international law principles, if you meet the link for prescriptive jurisdiction, you're often going to meet the link for adjudicatory jurisdiction. And maybe that lends into Paul's question. I have no problem with the restatement saying that we are going to break it up into three different categories is for uh, the purposes of U.S. foreign relations because it gives greater precision. I, I think that's totally fine. And, um, I think what can't be done, and this is what I push back, is that public international law says we we have this basic structural system which says that one nation can interfere with another nation through purposes of sovereign equality, self-determination, unless there's some really good reason. Might be in narrow circumstance of human rights, but rather the basic structural system of the of the international system says there's some limits. Now those limits have become less as people have moved away from territorial conceptions. I don't think though that then you can then strip out and say for analytical purposes we're going to pull out uh, adjudicatory jurisdiction and then say it's no longer subject to the other regime. And so I have no problem with the conceptualization of three categories. I just think that the existence in prescriptive jurisdiction under international law covers adjudicatory jurisdiction and there's no indication that they intended there not to be some link limit, which would then be my response, Bill, to you on your last point, which is, um, yeah, I, I see no problem with that at all. But the problem, I don't think you can say, well, just, we've got these international, public international lawyers that are clearly talking about adjudicatory jurisdiction within their concept of prescriptive jurisdiction. And then they, when they say there has to be at least some link, although there might be some disputes in certain contexts as to what that exists is, that we can then say that is not state practice uh, or that's not opinion of yours. And in fact, um, I, I just, um, so I, I'm, I think as a, an intellectual endeavor, I think you have a very reasonable position. I just don't think that's what most public international lawyers think. And so I just don't think it raises to the level of clearly established that you can take the modified Lotus position and say that's clearly established under public international law and therefore settled. I think at best it's highly controversial and I would say that, or at least contested, and I would say most public international scholars are worried about the having to create a basis rather than saying you need an affirmative sort of uh, uh, affirmative customs to show that you have ha have jurisdiction. Um, and, and lastly, on opinion of yours versus, so I agree with you, the principles are state practice, they're not opinion of yours. Um, but you look at Alec Mill's analysis of opinion of yours, uh, you look at Gary Bourne's analysis of opinion of yours, you look at the United States protests, in the uh, diplomatic protests in the 1980s, and they take the position uh, that there is a limit on adjudicatory jurisdiction uh, as a matter of opinion of yours. And so I, I, I'm not saying that it's not out of doubt, I just think that there's 
more doubt there than there is to be able to say for fourth restatement purpose. And I worry about the normative negatives of doing that, uh, that it essentially exempts adjudicatory jurisdiction from public international law in a way that wasn't originally intended. So hopefully I've responded to, to, to both Paul's. It's not that I disagree. I think the categorization is useful and helpful. It's just I think within that categorization, you can't then undermine the existing overlap, which says for any purposes of sovereignty, and this is beyond jurisdictional purposes, there has to be some connection or some interest, or else it's a violation of basic structural principles. Maybe I'll end with that. I also think that you've got to be very careful with customary international laws. We're talking about generally principles that are decided about emerging norms, that we can't apply the same standard to undermine principles that are structural in the international system that have been around for a very long period of time and sort of under, I, it, just seems odd to me that we can say, look, we've got a couple of state practice where they say they're not clear, and that undermines a core cornerstone, which says that you can't use state power over something that you have no connection with at all. So it's a pretty modest position I'm taking, right? I'm not even defining what those links are. I'm saying there should be discussion as to them. But, but a position that nothing at all has anything to do with international law to me is problematic. Let's get the uh, last two questions, at least from people on my list, from uh, Ed Swain and John Harrison. Um, so I can or, or should be brief. I think most of the um, comments I was going to have with respect to Austin's um, paper have been anticipated. Just uh, I'll say this without trying to get too much back into the substance of this discussion, but as far as shaping the chapter going forward, some additional arguments you might make in support of your position or some other things you might want to be um, cautious about. You sort of, in your, in your presentation, you had two um, uh, moves that were uh, interesting argumentative moves. One of them was this claim that um, the approach that um, you heard emerging out of yesterday's discussion regarding cautiousness and the like um, should also have been uh, adopted with respect to a lack of clarity in customary international law. Uh, and the um, second was essentially to describe um, the um, position of the restatement on the question of adjudicative jurisdiction and limits thereto um, as essentially being so much lotus eating. Uh, and um, I, I, think, I think that these are um, uh, two moves that are in fact basically the same move. I don't think that they're really uh, particularly distinctive. Um, as, to the, as to the first, the, the ethic of cautiousness, I think you probably can get greater mileage from a, a, a discussion that you and Bill I know and, and, the other, and other reporters have had separately. That is um, the amount of cautiousness that the um, reporters generally took with respect to deviating from the position of the restatement third. Um, now, I know that um, there's disagreement, uh, and um, there's been discussion in other work, uh, and to a certain extent in your draft paper about that, but I think that is a kind of cautiousness that's genuinely distinct from um, the Lotus kind of argument, and I think it's something that you can um, make, make more of uh, as, you, as you develop the chapter. With respect to the invocation of the sort of um, anti-Lotus um, sentiment, if you will. Um, I think that, that that too could be clarified. I think that the, um, the clearest, Bill can correct me on this, if, or, or Paul, uh, if I'm wrong, I think the clearest discussion of this is in the notes in um, 407, um, the perspective that the, um, uh, that the restatement fourth uh, took on this particular question. And I guess I have to indicate some frustration with the substitution of um, anti-Lotus 
um, uh, sentiment for what we generally would think of as the standards of proof for customer international law. In other words, I do agree with Bill, I think, that the question really ought to, presumptively the question should be uh, whether international law is established by means of evidence that ordinarily would resonate with international lawyers of opinion juris and state practice, uh, and less whether it is at one remove from the original lotus questions concerning the exercise of prescri prescriptive jurisdiction, or at two removes or at three removes. I think you know, we should try to confine lotus and the abreaction there too to its original circumstances and otherwise deal with these as international lawyers ordinarily would uh, and not worry so much about whether it's part of the original um, uh, lotus position or the uh, attacks thereon. And I think that's consistent with the Rheingart um, uh, excerpt you have. I think it's consistent with the position in the restatement, but I would not uh, put so much emphasis on that. John Harrison, and then we'll have Christina uh, Dargetis. Yes. Uh, Ralph Michelson, I hope this doesn't sound too much like the Chevron metaphysics about how many steps there are, but whether there are separate steps of scope and conflicts. Maybe there are, but it seems to me that if there are, they're both for a federal statute. They're both questions of statutory meaning because Congress controls the choice of law principles the federal courts use, and when it legislates uh, substantively, it can control the choice of law principles that the state courts use. And so if there's, a, if there's a second step, it too is a question about what is the choice of law principle that Congress has enacted if there is one. I suspect functionally gonna be, there's going to be one step because if Congress has decided at the scope stage to operate extraterritorially, I think it's unlikely that they would say, but if there's a conflict with another state's law, don't, don't follow the one that we just said is going to operate extraterritorially, maybe that's possible. But, so maybe there's really only one step, but in any event, I think if there are two steps, both of them are about the interpretation of the statute. As to, I, I wanna say something about Tom Lee and the statement in the restatement that and Paul said, well, this is obvious to anybody who's in a common law system. Well, uh, not everybody. Um, that when, when that in courts uh, applying common law uh, are engaged in lawmaking and therefore that's an exercise of prescriptive jurisdiction. I know that's now in the restatement. I wanna suggest that the, the idea of judicial lawmaking is a, is a very slippery one. And that saying that there is exercise of a uh, prescriptive jurisdiction in circumstances when courts are applying unwritten law, or only in court where courts are applying unwritten law, I don't know. Here, for 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 exa two two examples, when a court in a common law system interprets a statute, it often does something that is routinely referred to as judicial lawmaking. The gloss that a court puts on a statute can be called judicial lawmaking and quite reasonably be called judicial lawmaking in, in a way similar to that in which applying a common law principle can be called judicial lawmaking. But when the primary law is the statute, I think everybody would say the exercise of jurisdiction to prescribe was done by the legislature and not by the court. So judicial lawmaking doesn't necessarily mean that the court is exercising uh, uh, jurisdiction uh, to prescribe. And even in the areas of, that are governed by unwritten law in the American uh, system, I think when a federal court applies a state law rule, you would say that the jurisdiction to prescribe had been exercised by the state and that the federal court is just applying the, the, princi the principle even though it's an, un it's an unwritten principle. 
so as I say, I think, I think that's, a, that's a lot trickier concept than you might think. The idea of judicial lawmaking is a lot trickier concept than you, than you might think. Um, as to Schmidt-Keitner and, and the, the problem of the Fifth Amendment and the, and the Fourteenth Amendment. You solved it for me, right? <laughs> no, of course not. I'm just going to complicate it further. <laughs> two, two thoughts on, on why they might not be the same. And one that, that has uh, come up in this uh, discussion already is it may well be true that either, even if the two due process principles that are referred to in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments are the same, it is quite possible that that principle applies differently to quasi-sovereigns that are part of a federal union and to a sovereign that is part of an international system. And so yeah, I find entirely plausible that ground of distinction between the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, or maybe, I think this is a slight variation on that, or maybe if you don't think there is a single already established principle of due process that's being applied in both of them, maybe those words have slightly different meaning in the, in the, in the, two, different, in the two different contexts. So that's, that's, that's entirely possible. Another thing that I'll, that I'll raise, in part because last week I was uh, in, a, in, a, on a, in a discussion in which people who disagreed about this point were present. Between the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment, a lot of things happened. In American, in American law, and a lot of things happened under the rubric of due process. And so one of the things that's debated these days among people who talk about so-called substantive due process in the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments is, is whether the development, the developments in mainly in the state courts in the first half of the 19th century, the, uh, the so-called vested rights due process doctrine, whether that is properly attributed to the 14th Amendment, but not to the Fifth Amendment, because it was part of the context of the, of the 14th Amendment and not the Fifth Amendment. How much that might be true with respect to what's now a jurisdiction to adjudicate, I know less about, but certainly a whole lot, a, a whole lot happened between the Fifth and the 14th Amendment in general in American courts uh, concerning the meaning, of, the meaning and the application of due process. So that's another ground for thinking that they might, that they might come apart. Um, so in listening to the discussion about some of the underlying methodological questions of customary international law and how much one endorses the uh, Lotus approach in assessing evidence for a particular uh, customary international law rule or its absence, um, I wanted to come back to one of the questions that Ed raised in his paper, which is, as a general matter, what do we make of silence and inaction? And you had raised that question, Ed, especially in the context of um, executive branch silence and inaction. Um, but it's one that I think might be raised more broadly when we're looking at evidence of the presence or absence of a rule. Do we take silence as acquiescence or not? Um, right? Customary international law is made through a process where silence is often treated as acquiescence. And um, I'm not sufficiently steeped in this area to know whether directly engaging with this question of how do we deal with silence and inaction um, might help to bridge the gaps. Um, but it does strike me as a methodological question related to customary international law that is worth um, addressing, and it plays into this question of, so what, it, what, it, what does it mean to be cautious? Um, and it may not be appropriate 
in the name of caution to always treat silence or inaction as evidence of the lack of a customary international law rule. Okay, um, I'll give Tom Lee and uh, Shimon Keitner the opportunity to respond briefly. We're okay. kind of running out of time. So, um, I don't mean to say that prescriptive adjudicative jurisdiction should be combined as an American lawyer, subject matter jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction, I understood stand adjudicative jurisdiction. I, I, my, my only problem, my um, issue is this, like, so you take a case like Empogram, you've got a global vitamin fixing conspiracy, price fixing conspiracy, and these plaintiffs sue in U.S. court based on um, the piece of it that happens in Ecuador, not the United States, and Breyer says, look, the statute doesn't cover this. You've got the vitamin C case, this time China is making the vitamins, not Europe, and, and um, it's clear, the and these are vitamin producers in the United States, so it's clear the statute covers them. Um, the Chinese government comes in and says, well, they're doing it because we require them to do it, and the Second Circuit says, okay, that's good enough, we're not going to hear this case. Now, in that case, um, you know, I think that the statute pretty clearly covers it, so the Second Circuit was wrong, but let's say you're in a situation where the statute doesn't pretty clearly cover it. The question is, is there some room for the court to get rid of it because of other reasons? And I think that there is, even if those reasons don't fit into the presumption against extraterritoriality or form known convenience or, or, or settled doctrines that the Supreme Court has decided. It's just that the tests that the lower courts have formed in, in order to make that call have become so galactic and protean that, that you could drive a truck through them. I mean, that's sort of the the issue there. With regards to, to John's point about prescriptive, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, when I, with federal common law, the most acceptable ones are the procedural types of common law where you're talking about, um, you know, sort of like immunity or, or, or statutes or limitations and so forth. But if you look back, I mean, you know, for me, the only, the, the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is the jurisdiction, the only jurisdiction the Constitution actually compels. And the two types of cases there are cases affecting ambassadors and cases between states. And if you, if you, you know, let's, so let's say you have a dispute between New Hampshire and Maine about who owns the Portsmouth Naval Yard. Congress enacts a statute that says Maine uh, owns it. Uh, it seems to me the Supreme Court is fully within its power to say, no, we're going to disregard this and we're going to make the rule that we want. Same with ambassadors. I mean, I know this is just a crazy proposition, but Congress doesn't have any Article I ambassadorial power. It's in Article II and Article III. So if there's no treaty out there and, and, and Congress enacts a statute, so the ambassadors don't get any immunity, the Supreme Court can say we can disregard that statute and we have a different rule here. I mean, that case didn't didn't come up, and so it seems to me that, that, I mean, and those are sort of rare examples. I mean, the lower court examples, obviously the admiralty law, and the question is, when we're talking about this foreign relations enclave, is it something that exhibits aspects that are like the ambassadorial original jurisdiction that the Supreme Court has or the admiralty power? And I think historically, and as a, as a, even as a presentist matter, it probably does. And, and the last point I'll make is, is about specific and general and adjudicative and prescriptive. I'm not saying do away with those categories. It kind of reminds me of the pronoun wars now, right? I mean, I actually think that he, she is fine, uh, but maybe we should think about there. Let's hear uh, from Shemaine Keitner, and that will end our, our discussion on the record. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
only to say, I mean, as Tom, as you well know, uh, foreign sovereign compulsion doctrine is another one of those areas that needs to be worked out, including the types of evidence uh, needed to, to make a successful claim. So that did go beyond the Second Circuit. Uh, only to say thank you, John, although I'm very disappointed. I thought you would have the answer for me between dinner last night and, and this morning. So I guess I've got my work cut out for me. Enjoy coffee, everyone. Thank you to the panelists and the, and the audience. Too.